You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. So if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 10, it's page uh, 1014 in the Blue Church Bibles. If you haven't got a Bible, there's one down here, or just wave to the welcome team and they'll get you one. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Tessa, and hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the, uh, the leaders here at City Church, and it's great to be with you as we carry on in Mark's Gospel. Do keep that passage open, because we're going to be working our way through it. But just before we dive in, why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you now. As the God who is our creator and therefore has the right and authority to speak into any aspect of our life and world. And as we come to this particular topic, we appreciate the challenges that there will be sensitivity and indeed pain. But we know that you are a God who speaks both truth with deep understanding and compassion. And so we ask as we unpack this passage that you would give us ears to be able to hear, no matter our circumstance or our history or even our present. Make us hungry to hear what encouragement or challenge you might have to say to us personally today. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, none of us would leave this place unchanged. Amen. Well, I guess my my opening question is this. um, Who loves a good rom-com? Anyone give me a nod if you like a rom-com. There's, you know, a number of you out there. Let's not be shy about that. There are more people up there on the balcony. Thank you, Letty. There we go. I know you guys like rom-coms. Well, I wonder how many of us here actually believe in soulmates 
Can we talk about that on a Sunday? I wonder if you believe in soulmates. I wonder if you believe that there is a perfect match out there for you. I learned a word this week. You'll be very proud of me. The word is this. I want to say it correctly, so I'm going to read it. It's situationship. Have you ever heard of such a thing? I learned it. It's not in the dictionary, but apparently it's a thing. And I wonder, for those of you who understand what that word means, the rest of you can Google it. I wonder if you're thinking, I wonder if I have a situationship that might blossom into something wonderful. I wonder if you're thinking that. And I guess that's the excitement of a brand new term, isn't it? Because you may well be thinking to yourself, if you're in the market for such things, well, you could meet that very special person this month. Or, here's the exciting thing, maybe you could even meet them today here at church. Wouldn't that be a thing? Well, putting a little bit of a dampener on that optimism, today in this passage, as Tess has just read to us, Jesus is talking about divorce. I wonder if you're intrigued by that. We're going to talk about the heartbeat of relationships. Jesus is going to take us through, I think, in our culture at this time, which it feels a very controversial subject, but we're going to look at the heartbeat of relationships structured around four key words, four key words, and the first one is this, the trap, the trap. Now, we will get to the juicy bits about relationships. Um, but first, you need to know the context. Because Jesus isn't just giving a marriage seminar here. He's actually fighting to survive an ambush. Do you notice that? Look with me at verse 1. They're in the region of Judea and across the Jordan, we're told, and he runs into a crowd, and then the dramatic tension goes through the roof because a number of Pharisees step forward. And straight out of the gate, we're told that these Pharisees, they drop a question on Jesus that would have silenced the crowd and no doubt brought out a kind of violent intake of breath amongst those who are watching. And it's this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, for us, I guess, here in 21st century Manchester, that hardly seems a very controversial question. But if you were there at the time, if you were in the crowd, if you were watching this kind of public face-off between Jesus and the Pharisees, it would have been the type of question which meant that everyone would have been getting their phones out in order to film. Why? Because Jesus had just moved into a region governed by a ruler called Antipas. And Antipas had recently had Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist, imprisoned and killed. Why did he have him killed? He had him killed because Antipas had married a social climber called Herodias, who had divorced her husband, under the instruction of Antipas, in order to become a power couple, Herodias and Antipas. They were the celebrity figureheads of the time. And John the Baptist publicly was recorded as saying, uh-uh, that is absolutely wrong. And so the Pharisees, you can see, they've sprung the trap. Do you see that? 
the crowd would have been live streaming the response if it had happened in Market Street. Would Jesus go hardline and therefore risk being killed? Or would Jesus go soft and risk losing all credibility? Now, within Jewish culture, I've got to say, divorce was allowed. And they say that, don't we? Don't, don't you notice that in verse 4? They're quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21. But the rolling debate at the time was what qualified as an acceptable reason for divorce. Now, this isn't just a kind of like first century issue. I think this is a real 21st century live issue for us this afternoon. And I want, I want us as a community to be sensitive to that. Current statistics in the UK are around 42% of all marriages will end in divorce. Which means a number of us in this room, or even watching online, will have perhaps gone through divorce, or you will have come from a family where divorce has, has broken things. And divorce, no matter who's responsible, or what happened, is always awful, and it is always painful. I was talking with Jackie this morning about the number of couples, friends of ours that we have known over the years who married in great joy and yet it ended up divorced, many of them with children involved. And it was always heartbreaking. It was always awful. I want us to be aware of that as we talk about this, no matter which side you stand. Well, come with me to verse 5. Jesus accepts Moses' permission for divorce. He says, no, that's, that is true. It is written in Scripture. But Jesus argues that divorce should only be in the category of in case of emergency break glass rather than divorce being in the category of, you know, things that I'm not really feeling anymore. And so Jesus proceeds to paint a picture for us. He gives us the blueprints of what marriage ideally was all about. He gives us the blueprints. So come with me to our second word, our second point, the blueprints. Now, I don't know whether you've ever looked at blueprints from an architect. You know, the architect has spent many long hours drawing these kind of highly complex, beautifully designed schematics of a building that has yet to be built with lines and scribbles all over the place. And you're looking at that very same kind of design and plan, and it looks like some sort of crazy escape room puzzle, and you're scratching your head. You can hardly make head nor tail of it. And so the architect will turn to you and say, look, these are the headlines. It's got a roof. The door's over here. There's a wall here, a wall here, and a wall here. Well, Jesus in our passage, the great architect of all creation gives us the headlines for biblical marriage. He doesn't say all that could be said about it. He gives us the headlines. Verse 6, God made them male and female. 
It's a hyperlink here to Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible. And Jesus is referring to the fact that men and women are made with equal value and dignity, and yet they are distinct and they are different. And Jesus is making the point that echoing God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, who are equal in divinity and yet distinct persons, marriage is established at the very beginning of creation. Not merely for baby making, not merely for love, although it's important, but for something far more significant than that. For just as the creator God, Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct yet unified in love as one God with a single joint purpose, marriage is meant to echo that distinction, that unity, that love. Let me put it like this. If you're looking for a tattoo, this is the the phrase to get. Marriage is a billboard pointing you to something more important than marriage. Marriage is a billboard pointing you to something much more important than marriage. You see, this is where Christian marriage and secular marriage are very, very different. You see, secular marriage is the expression of one person's enjoyment of another, whereas Christian marriage is the expression of two people's enjoyment of God expressed in their care for one another. Can you see they're very different? And this is the key building block that makes sense of the rest of the blueprints. Look with me at verse 7. The couple will therefore be committed to one another more than their childhood family. Verse 8, the couple's commitment will reach into every aspect of their humanity, mind, body, and faith. The word that Jesus uses here, quoting uh, Genesis 2 of one flesh, it includes the idea of sexual intimacy between the husband and wife, but this oneness means vastly more than that. For how can a signpost that is meant to declare to the world the wonder of the love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit be modelled by a relationship that very easily will come apart, be fragile and break, be loose and ununified? Some of the biggest pastoral problems in this church stem from a false belief that God will abandon us, that he is not committed to us. Marriages that confirm that suspicion, well, they are dangerous. And they are very wonky signposts that point to the glorious nature of who God is. Which is why Jesus is prepared to risk his life by saying in verse 9, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
Now, I, I kind of hope you hearing that makes you think, wow, Christian marriage and secular marriage, they're really, really different, aren't they? And I kind of hope some of you are thinking, oh, I finally get it, why it matters that Christians should only marry other Christians. Because anything less than that will make you a very poor signpost pointing to God. Now, of course, the 21st century is, I imagine alarm bells are ringing all over the place, aren't they? Some of you will be kind of thinking, look, I've got a million scenarios running through my head. Matt, what about this? Or, or Matt, what about this situation? Or I can think of this situation which, which would make what Jesus is saying here very uncomfortable. Look, we will get to some of those. We will, we will. But isn't the big freak out for us as a culture when it comes to a passage as controversial as this be all based around the idea that surely authentic love must all be about freedom and not about being bound by some sort of official piece of paper. Well, the writer Lewis Smedes on the subject of keeping your vows over following your feelings, he says something very startling. It's a longish quote, but let me read it to you because I think it's powerful. This is what Lewis Smedes says. When I make a promise, I testify that I was not rooted along some unalterable itinerary by some psychic conditioning visited on me by my slightly wacky parents. When I make a promise, I declare that my future with the people who depend upon me is not predetermined by a mixed-up culture of my tender years. I am not fated. I am not determined. I am not a lump of human dough whipped into shape by the contingent reinforcement and aversive conditioning of my past. But when I make a promise to anyone, I rise all above the conditioning that limits me. No German shepherd ever promised to be there with me. No home computer ever promised loyal help. Only a person can make a promise. And when he does, he is most free. You see, when Jesus raises the bar on marital commitment, he's not decreasing freedom. Actually, he's heightening freedom to enable us to thrive. But alongside Jesus raising the bar on commitment, he also raises the bar on equality. And that takes us to our third word, our third point, the shield. Now, in the first century, there were two types of divorce. They were both absolutely heartbreaking, but one was better than the other. You see, one of those versions of divorce led to social and even physical death, whilst the other one led to the possibility of renewal, and even restoration. You see, back when the Israelite nation was, was first born, when it was first being formed, God gave the Israelites a template about how every aspect of their life, including marriage, should be organized in order for the community to thrive. 
And we saw that, didn't we? Jesus was talking about that in the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2, the blueprints. But it was very early in the Israelite community when selfishness and sin, that is rejecting God's pattern for the way that we should live, spread throughout the Israelite community like bacteria on meat that's been left on the hot sun. And what the Israelites, and they were led by Moses at the time, what they saw was men were treating their wives unjustly. Uh, Many men were even divorcing their wives by kicking them out for, for reasons that would make us blush. And this led to poverty for the women who were just being kicked out of any chance of having food or clothing or provision. It it meant that some of those women became social outcasts, tainted goods, people that no one should talk to. It meant even some of those women who perhaps got remarried but couldn't prove that their old marriage had been formally distinguished were dragged into public spaces and executed for adultery. And Moses, who was the leader of the Israelites at the time, knowing that all of this was absolutely opposite to God's pattern for how his community should function, he gave women, back in the time of Moses, a shield. That is, he gave them a certificate of divorce that would be their protection against any potential injustice. And Jesus affirms this shield in verse 5. Do you see that? And then he makes the shield even bigger in verse 12. You see, most Jewish communities at the time Jesus was walking believed that only men, only men, could divorce women. And the reasons for that divorce really could be anything. The um, Jewish writer Josephus describes how he divorced his wife simply because she annoyed him. There's other stipulations in Jewish literature of the time where it was said that a man was legitimate in divorcing his wife if the wife's voice was so loud it could be heard by her neighbours in the house next door. Now, I guess a number of wives may well be in the room whispering to their husbands, don't even think about it. And a number of husbands are thinking to themselves, I didn't even know that was an option. Let me tell you, Jesus is saying, that is not an option. Look at me at verses 11 to 12. You see, we're most uncomfortable by verses 11 and 12, aren't we? Have you soaked those in? What looks to our culture like an overly restrictive relational straitjacket, divorce and remarriage is adultery, in the context of men dropping their wives into the abyss of shame, poverty, and even death, as easily as one might change a light bulb, Jesus' words to a woman in this passage are like a suit of armour. Do you see that? They are like a suit of armour. What's even more controversial for the time is Jesus says in verse 12 that both husband and wife, both husband and wife, both husband and wife need to restrain themselves 
from pursuing selfish feelings as both of them equally have access to pressing the big red button of divorce. Equal access to doing that. You see, in first century Jewish culture, that was unheard of. And Jesus was giving married women a shield of protection and sharing with them a power that they had never experienced. Now look, listen really carefully if you're taking notes. Matthew chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 fleshes out in way more detail on how the New Testament applies divorce within our contemporary culture. This passage does not say everything. Those two passages give more detail. But the Bible is absolutely clear. There's kind of a bit of a trailer for those passages when you go and read them at home. Sexual unfaithfulness, abandonment, or abuse are all legitimate reasons to break the emergency glass and remove yourself from an unsafe relationship. And I have to say, if you are in a relationship where you are not safe, whoever you are, then I'd really encourage you to come and speak to myself or Eric or Chris or Rachel, or Katie, or Tessa, and we'll be around over the course of this afternoon or through the week if you would like to talk. But the headline principle is this. One, make every effort to stay married. Secondly, the protection and safety of the most vulnerable members of the relationship must be a priority. Well, come with me to our our fourth word and our fourth point, the tomb. The tomb. So where are we at? The trap has been sprung. Jesus has re-inked the blueprints that marriage exists to signpost the world to something greater than itself. And Jesus recognizes that in a selfish and broken world, the vulnerable need a shield. But is there anything in this passage for those of you who perhaps feel that it's too late? Is there anything in this passage for those who have perhaps been through divorce or you've grown up in a home that was ripped apart by divorce? Perhaps you are the victim of great injustice or perhaps you are the perpetrator. And there is already deep shame in your heart about a relationship which began with a public vow till death do us part, but all you have now is deep shame and regret. What comfort to you does a passage like this even offer? What understanding can you receive from a God who has set such a high bar for marriage and commitment? Well, here we go. Mark includes this passage to teach us that Jesus is about to get divorced. You see, just like the blueprint in the Bible, marriage is never merely about a committed relationship 
of love between a couple. And just as we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, how marriage echoes the Trinitarian God of Father, Son, and Spirit, in passages like Ephesians 5 or Revelation 21, the image of marriage is used to represent the even more important relationship between Jesus and his people. And I guess the sharp ones amongst you might be wondering, why on earth has Mark written in this biography of Jesus, why is he focused now on this particular teaching of divorce? Well, you'll remember from last week, do you remember that Jesus declared that he knows that he's going to die? And he's entering a region of Judea where Jesus is literally setting foot on the road to Jerusalem where he's going to be killed. And so Mark's priority is for us, the readers, to understand why is Jesus going to die? And what this passage teaches us is that God is being divorced by his people. And the reason for their divorce of God is just as Moses feared, the people's hearts had become hard towards him. God is getting divorced by his people. Only this divorce, they would offer him no shield. They would give him no protection. His humiliation would be made absolutely public. He would be accused of being morally shameful, that he should be an utter outcast. He would be mocked for being powerless, and he would be killed because his teachings were inconvenient. The great pain, the great pain of divorce is the public declaration, whichever side you're on, is the one who should have loved you has left you. That's what divorce publicly says. The one who should have loved you has left you. And whether it be in marriage or singleness, the Israelites should have been God's signpost to the world, but they no longer wanted to be in relationship with God. And so they were going to have him killed. They were going to put him up on false charges. And they would have him buried in a tomb to be forgotten. To be permanently cut off. Of course, the irony is, we're the ones, aren't we? Who should have been cut off. We're the ones who should have been cast out. We're the ones who were unfaithful after all. Let, let me ask you this. How many times... Even this week, have you found yourself allowing your heart to worship things that are not God? We're the ones, every single one of us in this room is guilty of that, who at different times have sought to divorce ourselves from God, to push away our Creator and, if you will, remarry another false idol, whether it's the worship of work or the worship of children or the worship of experiences or the worship of wealth or even the worship of true romance, we're the ones who have pushed God aside and sought to remarry. 
It should have been us who were cut off in the tomb, but instead, it was him. And yet, and yet the tomb is the place of the deepest hope for relational repair. For the secret of any lasting marriage is the ability to absorb the hurt that another one gives and to not treat them as they deserve. I think if if you're in a relationship, you know that, don't you? Jesus died and was placed in a tomb And it marked the fact that Jesus took upon himself all of the hurt, all of the betrayal, all of the selfishness. And yet instead of punishing us for that, Jesus offered an everlasting fresh start. He offers not only complete forgiveness, but he promises us no matter what happens, he will never walk out, but he will always choose to stay. You see, just as Christian marriage signposts us to look at the God of Father, Son, and Spirit and wonder and adore him, just as marriage points us to look at the love between Christ and his people, divorce, divorce when we see it, in our culture, in our society, when we see how it rips the fabric of relationships, how it tears financial situations to ribbons, how it destroys time and it corrupts mental health and physical well-being. When we see divorce, it is always tragic and it is a signpost to remind us of the even more terrible consequences of what happens when we created beings separate ourselves from our God. But the tomb also reminds us to be full of hope. Because the tomb didn't remain shut. Three days later it was opened. And Jesus returned to new life. Do you remember that? And in that new life he offered us, we who are spiritually divorced, he offers us a way back to him. A way back where regardless of what we will do, Jesus will never walk away from us. And no matter how hard things get, our safest place will always be with him. And if you ever choose to walk away from Jesus, he promises that he will never remarry. And he will never change the locks. And he will always be right here, waiting to welcome you back. I I wonder as we finish, there's an application for those of us who have never come to Jesus. I wonder if today is the day for you to do that. But I also wonder as we finish with a song of response, That for those of us who have been far away, who have pushed God aside and are struggling to come back, I wonder if this afternoon might be the opportunity to return. And as we sing this final song, I wonder if it will be for us as a community, in many ways, a public 
recommitting of our vows to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that we are guilty of pushing you away. Guilty of worshipping other things that we have not been faithful. And yet you are the God who through Jesus' death and resurrection offers us a way back. Who promises us that you are still here waiting for us. And for those who have been far away, I pray that this afternoon you would come back and recommit yourself to Christ who longs to greet you again with such a welcome. For those who have never known Christ but wish to come, I pray this afternoon would be your moment. And for those of us who feel the guilt and shame that we have not loved you as we ought to, may we commit ourselves again that we will follow no one else but you.